0: Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk
1: Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk.
0: And I'm Eric.
1: The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation.
0: We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little
1: bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It cast.com.
0: Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should
1: have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us.
0: So let's get on to the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to Let's Hear It. Kirk and I hope that you are all taking good care of yourselves and that everyone is, is healthy and safe right now. We're bringing you this interview with Ann Cristiano of the Center for Public Interest Communications that took place in early February, followed by my conversation with Kirk that we recorded just a few weeks after that. We really hope that you're enjoying the show and that these conversations are just as relevant as ever. Thanks so much for listening.
1: And hey, everybody, welcome in to another edition of Let's Hear It. Tell us tell us what we're about to listen to, because this was awesome. This was extraordinary.
0: We... I went to the Frank conference at the University of Florida at Gainesville, which is hosted every year. Frank is named after Frank Carell, who is we have spoken whom we have spoken about many, many times, about whom we have spoken for the Grammarians <laughs> many, many times on this show. Frank was is considered kind of the the godfather of foundation strategic communications. And there is this conference that is named after him. And I spoke with Ann Cristiano, who is the Frank Carell Chair for public Impe-
1: Public was- Interest Communications. Get this <laughs> right? What is. is
0: wrong with me? I'm all messed up in my head.
1: Public <laughs> interest
0: communications at the University of Florida Gainesville. And Anne is concluding her ten year tenure yeah. as the chair. Uh, as the Frank Carell chair. She is staying there to run the Frank Carell Center for Public Interest Communications, but she will be yielding the chair. So for for, for folks who are interested, that chair is available. Mm-hmm. If you want to teach Public Interest Communications uh, in Gainesville, Florida, yeah. the, 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 the job is open. But Anne reflects on her time there. She reflects on her work at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation where she worked for Frank. And she has, I mean,
1: I, she has really moved this field along. Well, and I think you mentioned in the interview, but you, this is you capture her in kind of a remarkable moment. Oh yeah, right.
0: I grabbed her just as the conference was ending, her yeah. last conference's chair. Yeah, and we went down into the into the basement there at the Hip Drum in in uh, in Gainesville, and so I was, you know, it's kind of like, I'm going to Disneyland. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. Uh, but so she was kind of, um, it was an emotional moment for her, and it was very generous of her to, to
1: use to use that time to talk with me. It's a big moment, and you called it an exit interview, <laughs> appropriately. And and so here, God. we've said this before, let's say it right here, Ann Cristiano, thank you for your work. Ten hard, good, solid years with the work you've done. Um, so this is Ann Cristiano on Let's Hear It. Let's uh, take a listen, and we'll come back and talk after.
0: Welcome to Let's Hear It. M- my guest this week is Anne Cristiano, who, and this is your exit interview. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow, <laughs> we,
0: we are uh, we are speaking here in the in the bowels of Frank. If we if we hear background noise, that's okay. There's there's folks around here at the end of the conference. So it's Friday afternoon. We've just concluded, and you've just you are concluding your tenth year as the Frank Carrel Chair of Public Interest Communications at the University of Florida at Gainesville. This will be a really interesting conversation. I know you're. Feeling very emotional as as well you should because you've done an uh, an extraordinary thing for our field and I, um, I wanted to start with a story about something that you did for me and I, I think that it captures at least for me anyway what it means to work in this field and and then we can talk about your your take on all of this when I started at the Hewlett Foundation David Morris. At the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, called me up. Uh, I was in contact with him because I was interested in exploring how communications uh, and politics intersected. And you were working on a project. You were working on the Connect project at Rob, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I called you up and I said, "David said that I should give you a call." And you said, "We're do, we're running a a program in uh, on the Hill, and you're invited, and you can come to anything." And I thought <laughs> that was the most generous thing I'd ever heard. So I just start with that. But how are you feeling right now? It's been quite a, a journey.
2: Proud. Really proud. Really excited. There was a moment at the end of Frank Today where a young woman who had been a student of mine, uh, Luisa Harako, was speaking. Uh, she was the curator for the Block on Hope, and she asked all of these students in the room to stand up. And it was really just such a magnificent moment to see them all stand up and, and to know that the surface that we have scratched is ground that they're just going to dig and dig and dig and that they are going to build something really extraordinary. So I'm proud. I'm excited. I'm satisfied. You know, there's a, a lot of good work that our field has, has done in the past 10 years. I had this feeling when I, when I woke up the morning after the election in 2016. Of course, I was very, very sad. But I also had this feeling of, this is where everything begins. This is where we take the hardest lesson and we take that lesson and we realize we weren't good enough. We didn't do good enough work and we have to do better work. And we're about to. And it's been just amazing to see how organizations around the world have really taken that so seriously and are doing so much better work and really focusing on hope and triumph and all of these positive things that people want to feel. So I'm really energized by what I see from students, from people in the field, from this sort of doubling down of excellence and strategic communications, and really excited for the, wor- the world that we're going to build together.
0: You didn't Uh, set out to be an academic. No. Perhaps you're not an academic. You're a practitioner. you know, an acaditioner.
2: How did you end up
0: being a professor of public interest communication?
2: Because I'm here to tell you the University of Florida is not at all picky.
0: (laughs) Okay, you're not. No, no, no modesty. Just tell me their story.
2: So I worked at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation because Frank Corral hired me early in my career, and he had had this idea that he wanted to mentor somebody from very early in their career and, and help that person sort of take on a senior role as they grew. And I got to be that person, and so I got to work by Frank's side until he retired from the foundation. And when he started to think about his legacy and he and Betsy with Andy Burness and the council of many other people in the field started to think about what his legacy would be, they decided to endow this chair at the University of Florida. And the idea of this chair would be that a practitioner would come in and begin to help young people choose this path. Because none of us had the opportunity to choose this path as undergrads. And even if we had, there was no place to go and get the skills and the the training and and the mindset to be able to do that work really well. Each of us came into this field from another one. We didn't have the opportunity to choose the path. And so Frank's vision was that young people could choose that path and that it would be a practitioner who would come and do that. And so I had heard that they were recruiting heavily. I I hoped that they would get somebody good. But it wasn't until I was speaking at a memorial service that RWJF was hosting, and the dean of the college at that time attended as part of his recruiting efforts and his deep appreciation of Frank, and I looked at him and I said, oh, that's that's what I want to do. That's where I want to go next. So it's I, I'm mystified and proud of the fact that I worked by Frank's side for so many years. He mentored me. I wish he had known that I applied for the position. Uh-huh. Um, I like to think he knows that I got to be the first Frank Corral chair, but it's something that when I look back over my shoulder makes tremendous sense, but at the time was just, you know, really beautiful, beautiful connection.
0: And you are relinquishing the chair by design.
2: Yes. Why
0: yeah. why was this thing set up to be a tenure?
2: Because Frank was brilliant. Frank was absolutely brilliant. And because the position was designed for a practitioner, he was concerned that after 10 years, that the insight, the experience would get stale. Nobody wants to be that that tired professor telling war stories at the front of the classroom that are no longer relevant. And I think Frank was rightfully concerned that 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 might happen. It's also true that... It's time for somebody to come in and bring in new ideas, to start to think about what else we can do to, to make this field grow, to get this program into other universities around the country and around the world. We will not be an established academic discipline until we are in not just one university or three universities, but every university.
0: It's been 10 years. And like I said, this is your exit interview. What have you learned? <laughs> <laughs> Take that anywhere you like.
2: I've learned that the most powerful thing you can do is ask for help. And it has been absolutely amazing to see how the field just really rallied around this position. And I, from the day I started, Aaron Hart called me the day that I got the job and said, hi, I'm Aaron Hart. You don't know who I am, but I'm your new best friend. And I am here to help you succeed in this position. I will do everything within my power to help you do that. And she kept her word. And so did a 100 other people. And the field has really been so supportive of the work that's happening here by coming to Frank, by sponsoring Frank, by helping make Frank great. And really never pretending that I could do it by myself um, and always asking for help when I needed it It was really fundamental to what exists here now.
0: Okay, so you were a practitioner. You were working Mm -hmm. up in DC, or working at Robert Johnson Foundation, and Mm -hmm. you were going to come down and be an academic. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did you start to think about what you thought either the field needed or how you could add what you knew to academia? It must have been an extraordinary opportunity, but also fairly intimidating.
2: Oh my gosh, it was so, so intimidating. So a couple of things. One was that I really wanted to start with a plan. And so I can't remember who gave me this advice. It was such good advice. Somebody said, make a spreadsheet of everything you want to achieve year by year, and you won't do it, but it'll help you stay focused and keep you from feeling overwhelmed. But the other thing that I really put into that spreadsheet and was really focused on was trying to figure out how I could help Anne at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation 10 years earlier. What did that person need? Because I felt like we were working on the most important issues in the world, and yet I was making it up every day. And I thought, I wonder if other people feel like this. And I started asking them, and they said, yeah, I do. I feel like I make it up every day. And I started to think, well, how could we help that? And how might we begin to find some resources and frameworks that we could apply that would be rooted in things that we would know would work? And so. Very early on, I had this deep passion for finding answers in published academic research, something that is not available to most practitioners. Journal access is very expensive. It's time-consuming to read hundreds of journal articles. And, uh, and so really being able to find themes and principles in the scholarship, in published academic research, and translating them for practitioners was really important. But I was so overwhelmed by that task, and I didn't know how to get at it. And then I was having dinner with the amazing, incomparable Rich Neiman one night, and he's like, you know... I have this niece at University of Florida. You should have coffee. And I'm like, oh god, like another one of these things where people are like, will you look out for my so and so person? Everyone got a niece. Everybody's got everybody's got one. And and the of course the thing is that when you meet that person, they're always amazing, and you're glad that they did. Uh, and when Annie Nieman and I met. I realized that this was the person who I had been looking for. She had this deep passion. She was a PhD student in sociology, and she just she said, I don't want to go and do more research. I want to use the research that's already been published to build the world we wish existed. And from that moment, we had this partnership with her. She just has this incredible knack of reading research and understanding why it's important and helping people think about how to apply it. So that Partnership was really important to creating this bridge between what a university can offer to the field and translating it in a way that practitioners can use it every day.
0: What do you wish you could have done and, and you didn't, couldn't? Was it something got in your way?
2: At a really human level, I wish there had been more time in my hours. <laughs> you know, I wish there had been more time with students, more time to read, more time with my kids who grew up while I was here. I moved to Florida with a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and an infant, and now they're all teenagers. (laughs) It's kind of crazy. So I wish there was just more of all of it because it was amazing, but I don't want it to last any longer. And I would like to see public interest communications offered as a degree. I would like for public interest communications to be a degree that you can get right alongside advertising, marketing, journalism, public relations. And I am convinced that it is rugged enough, durable enough to be able to do that.
0: I've, Spent a lot of time thinking about research and about how researchers do such a, a kind of a piss poor job of communications, and about how communications people do a piss poor job of research. And it, it feels to me like you are attempting to bring these things together to build mm-hmm. these relationships. Where do you see you've succeeded at that? Where is there something that you can point to? This as yeah, we we did crack the nut on something.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the things that I didn't expect about this position is that once we started, Annie and I started writing and sharing these ideas, we started getting all of these calls from organizations that were saying, I have this really hard question to answer and maybe you can help me figure it out. And so we started getting calls from the UN Agency on Refugees and the Gates Foundation to say, can you help us figure out how to apply what's in the literature to this really big challenge that we're facing? And so the fact that we're doing direct work in the field We just started a new project with the International Labor Organization around child labor and forced labor and and how we might help them think about using this kind of scholarship to take those challenges on. And the fact that we're able to do direct work in the field with these partners and apply these ideas is just something that was such an unexpected aspect of our work here.
0: So you had no idea you were going to go into business?
2: No, 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 no. I didn't expect to be running an agency at the end of my 10 years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, so now you're going to run the Center for Public Interest Communications Yes. You get to stay on campus, right? You get to work with students. I do. So what's different? And you're you're still going to get to teach.
2: I still get to teach. I still get to work with students. I still get to be on campus with my amazing colleagues. I- walk into work every morning overjoyed to see my colleagues. I'm not sure that many people feel that way, um, but uh, it's pretty amazing. And the big thing that's different is that we're supporting ourselves, which is pretty uncommon in academia. Our team is able to support our salaries and uh, that of our research associates entirely through the partnerships that we've established around the world, which feels pretty exciting until I remember that that's actually how most of America lives. Uh, <laughs>
0: Well, the other thing that you did was you started an, a, an annual meeting. And we're going to talk about that when we get back from the break. I'm here with Ann Cristiano. We'll be right back. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It Online at Let's or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest is Anne Cristiano, who runs the Center for Public Interest Communications at the University of Florida at Gainesville. And you had seven years ago started this annual gathering named after Frank Carell called Frank. Can you just talk about the idea behind that?
2: I wish I could say it was my idea, but it wasn't. It was Andy Burness. The field had come together to, as a tribute to Frank Carell, create this Carell Fellowship Program. And Andy Burness, who was really sort of leading this effort, said, you know – we should have a meeting once a year in tribute to Frank Corral where the Corral fellows will come and share their experiences and we'll call it the Corral symposium. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody's got time for that. <laughs> Nobody wants to go to a symposium. And he said, well, okay, well let's take this idea and make it better. So we um, decided to invite 30 people to the University of Florida to come together and say, like, let's design the kind of gathering that everybody really wants to come to, that feels like a celebration, and let's figure out what the rules of the road are, and let's design something that is really special, that it will be our shared gift to the field. And remarkably, 30 people came at their own expense and sat in the basement of the College of Journalism for three days, planning this incredible gathering and we made all of these rules like the first rule was there would be no panels we made a rule that there would be no tablecloths anywhere um tablecloths tablecloths now you know like a it, it, bed yeah i mean it's just you know fussy we wanted it not to be fussy <laughs> people we, will spill right
0: on the table
2: exactly exactly and That's we good. came up with the three rules of frank the three rules There are only frank has just three rules which is um no open flame, no glitter, no douchebags. And we've we've <laughs> held that rule. <laughs> we've kept that rule over the seven years. But one of the things, kidding aside, one of the things that's really special about our field is the incredible generosity people have toward their colleagues and their willingness to share the best of what they know with the field. Because we are all so deeply committed to our missions and we all want everybody to do better work. And we wanted to create a space where people would leave with new friends because it works hard. And people don't necessarily do things for their professional network, but they do things for their friends. And so we wanted people to really have this deep sense of community. How many, how many
0: students have participated in the Frank
2: oh my gosh. I mean, over the years? It's got to be more than 1,000. And the students are, you, when you come to Frank, you feel their incredible energy. You know, they're checking you in. They're miking up speakers. They are, um, helping people find their next session. They are everywhere and they are just energetically asking questions of the participants, so eager to learn from them, to find their own place in the field. And they are, the true magic of Frank, people often ask, like, why do you always have to do this in Gainesville? Why couldn't you do it someplace else? I'm like, because I don't have the budget to bring 150 students to the next place that we have this gathering, and we cannot do it without them.
0: What's next? I mean, obviously, you're going to turn over part of this work to somebody else. What's, what's next? What do you think is going to happen next?
2: I don't know, but I'm really excited about it. I've spent the past 10 years planning every day, always going back to that spreadsheet, ticking off the boxes. I didn't know that this job would be so extraordinary and so transformational. I had no idea what was in store for me. And I'm really excited by the openness of seeing what happens when a new chair comes in and they have the opportunity to, to build their vision and that I have the opportunity to support them or get out of their way, as, as is their pleasure. So I don't know. And that's really great.
0: What, so what would you tell the Anne Cristiano of 10 years ago or 20 for that matter?
2: So many things. I think the most important thing that I would say, though, is it's not a dress rehearsal. You think that you're going to get to come back to these moments in your life and you don't. So you really, really have to be in them and soak them up because they're so magical.
0: It's a really nice thing to say and a good reminder, to, I think, to all of us to slow down from time to time. I, and I would like to say, you know, I've, I've w- really enjoyed coming here. This is, i this, get into a little, a, a minor speech, uh, um, I was a member of the board for the communications network for a long time. And I love that group and I love that gathering. And this one is different. There's you, you, you can't compare them. They're just different and, and special. And, and this is intimate and uh, it has an emotional context that is hard to find. I think. And I've just really appreciated. I've really appreciated being able to participate and to be welcomed in. And I appreciate the leadership that you have shown. I really do think that you have, uh, you are you are helping to to lead a movement, and uh, I don't know. It's 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 been it's been a lot of fun. It's been really really interesting. I've also learned a lot about research. I do think that we don't we these these worlds are st- still need to come together. Do you see more opportunities for that? And if so, where does it
2: happen? Yeah, and I think people come into this field with a great deal of idealism, and that idealism is wonderful. It gets us out of bed in the morning, but we have to be more pragmatic. And we are often afraid as practitioners to make the strategic choices that feel like sacrifices. And so I think that as a field, we have to hold ourselves accountable to better work, that we have to surrender the idealism that brings us to the work and really focus on where we can make a difference and making those difficult choices about where we place our resources and our time. I also think that we need to hold ourselves accountable to the ways in which social behavioral cognitive science can help us do far better work. We do a lot by instinct because we are idealists and that feels moral and right. But the reality is we've got to go to the research. We cannot trust our own gut because our gut is so often wrong. And I would like us as a field to hold ourselves accountable to doing work of that quality where we may have an instinct about how to approach a problem, but we hold ourselves accountable to saying, you know what, let's check and make sure we're going to do this right.
0: Has there been one or two or three pieces of research that spun your head around that changed the way you thought about this work or the things that, or let's put it this way. If, if our listeners, you know, when they're, when jogging or whatever they're Mm -hmm. doing when they listen to to this podcast, if they should pick up one or two either books or pieces of research, what should it be?
2: There are a lot of books that have gotten some really great traction recently. Thinking Fast and Slow has got a ton of attention. Jonathan Haidt's work has gotten a ton of attention. I think the work around the moral emotions uh, that we heard from Renee Weber today just blew my mind. Absolutely incredible stuff. I think we need to do a better job of creating more of those resources. I think the work that Chip and Dan Heath did with um, Made to Stick and Switch uh, we need more of that translational kind of work because we just don't have enough of those resources. Annie and I, one of the things I'm really excited about is I'm going to be spending a lot of time on planes this year, and Annie and I are deep in working on a book to begin to translate the frameworks that we've been developing. So I think we need more of more of those kinds of work, more of those pieces of work. And I think what's interesting to me is not any particular piece of research but just how many answers you can find in the research. For example, the importance of visuals and visual language and metaphor to creating the sense for us that we have had a lived experience that translate abstraction into meaning. That's really powerful work, and it helps us understand why the metaphors that we use are so incredibly powerful and important. So I think that it's not any single piece of research, but the fact that there are so many answers to be found there when we go looking for them.
0: Well, today, what I took away, we—I just want to describe the the conference for these the meeting for these last three days, where it was centered around emotion, mm-hmm. and you took little blocks in yeah. which we would focus on a, a particular emotion: yeah. anger, fear, mm-hmm. and t- today, and there were positive emotions as well. Today, obviously, fittingly, and 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 no mistake here, you finished on hope. Yep, and it was. Pretty darn hopeful. It also reminded me that we do spend so much time in these negative emotions, mm-hmm. and that that to I would say mixed effect. Mm-hmm. So great, we've scared the crap out of everybody, and now we can't. We haven't come up with the way to help solve that problem, which is okay. Right. Now, now, what do you want me to do? Right. And the hope work, the the things that we saw. Uh, Reminded me that we have a lot of work to do. That we haven't gotten there yet. We actually haven't really described a, a hopeful future effectively. And as you mentioned just a little while ago, that that two thousand sixteen was a perfect example of mm-hmm. that. Fear won.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, because we couldn't we couldn't compete on on fear. We're going to lose. <laughs> we're gonna lose in that marketplace. Oh yeah, um, but and it made me hopeful. I got a little meta too. It made me feel hopeful about where the opportunities are. Mm-hmm. Do you think? How do you see that? Where? How do you see that actually playing out? Because I think we're starting to learn, but we're not there yet. And we're getting communicate. We're getting research, but we haven't translated that over to the practitioners. If If you think about it, you know, in these slightly divided components, mm-hmm. where do you see the hope work? starting to get traction? Where do you see how we can learn as practitioners learn from that?
2: Yeah. And I think the work that Thomas Coombs was talking about today, the work that he did with amnesty and showing how that hope-based messaging was so incredibly powerful and moving from a fear frame or a sadness frame to really thinking about what do people want to feel? what do people want to feel when they think about these issues and offering them the opportunity to empathize, not with people's darkest moments, but their greatest ones. You know, I think we, I, I loved the presentation from Lauren and Hans from UN, the UN Agency on Refugees, because they kind of took down this, this idea that empathy should be our single goal. And I loved the way Thomas built on that and said, yeah, it's not helpful to try to get people to empathize with people's darkest moments. But if we use empathy to get people to empathize with those brighter moments, we have a lot of power there. And I think sometimes we go into this work because we're sad about it or angry about it. And we're like not happy until everybody else feels as bad as we do about it, right? That's right. (laughs) Which is like exactly, like you couldn't have a better strategy for demotivating your target communities and your target audiences. So I'm pretty excited about the opportunities that we saw in these more positive emotions and pleasant emotions like Awe and pride and hope.
0: Yeah, no more of the bumper sticker. If you're not appalled, you're not paying attention.
2: (laughs) I mean, did we ever really think that that was going to work? And like, I do think that I really sort of fantasize about an end to sanctimony. Like, that would be pretty amazing.
0: Well, uh, no sanctimony here. I hope it's 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 really been great. I, I appreciate your time. It, you and I dragged you down here to have this conversation <laughs> right as 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 your moment of glory was occurring at the end of the conference. So thank you for your double thank you Aww. for your time. Uh, it's it's been fabulous. I will see you next year. Oh, ooh, and the other thing that I would just remind folks to is that if you weren't able to come to Frank this year, you can come to Frank this year by watching the.
2: Yeah, all the videos from this Frank and every Frank that's ever ever happened are available on our website, and there's some pretty amazing stuff that's happened uh, in the seven years, and videos that I continue to go back to as really master classes in how to drive change.
0: Well, uh, we'll link to some of them.
2: Okay, great.
0: Send me send me your list of ones that that we should link to. And the one thing that I would say is for this year, watch the opening.
2: Oh my gosh, that the, was pretty great, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was the
0: opening m- kind of musical introduction. Uh, I won't say anything other than just just watch it. it it's, <laughs> it's really just extraordinary. Those are the kinds of moments that you hope to have in your life, and that was one of them.
2: Yeah, anytime you get to be in a room where there's a collective gasp, it's pretty great.
0: <laughs> well, um, you can have our collective thank you. Um, and Cristiano, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. And thank you for asking all of these questions and giving me an opportunity to reflect on a really great 10 years.
0: Well,
1: it's been a great 10 years and here's to the next 10. Absolutely. <laughs> and we're back. So, Mr. Brown, we've had a variety of conversations in, this, uh, in our, kind of our debriefs about these interviews just about that. <laughs> what I would call the grace, class, and professionalism (laughs) of the people that we've interviewed around a whole bunch of different topics, Anne's capacity to sit with you and reflect in a meaningful way about 10 years of a tenure, as it's literally coming to conclusion, you know, she's coming off the stage at the uh, conference. I really thought was extraordinary. That was and pretty generous. How did you get her to do that? Because I, I don't know, man. Th- there was real emotion in this. And yet she had a really, I felt like crystal clear capacity to kind of like, you were asking, I mean, you're asking her some pretty, you know, thematic and challenging questions that she immediately clearly has been thinking about. Yeah. So how did that happen? How did you guys even pull this off that you stepped off the stage and immediately by the way, your, uh, your field work is getting great. You guys sounded awesome. Oh, that's right. Good. <laughs> this is no longer the phone in the middle of the table in the closet, <laughs> right? It was really great.
0: Well, yes. It's, we, we have better mics. Uh, it, she, it just reflects the kind of person that she is. As I told that story about how when I was first at the Hewlett Foundation, I called her up and said, Can I tag along as you go up to Capitol Hill and talk to people? And you're going to lead all these seminars with your grantees on how to do good communications she's yeah sure come on along hmm. so this, that's just who she is she's generous and that was I don't know if I had been finishing up 10 years as the chair of something feeling really emotional I might not want to have this conversation I,
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly and you asked her how she felt and she immediately proud and excited and I thought man I, I hope that's everybody's last day statement about their work, yeah. right? What an extraordinary thing to be able to say. There's so many different, you know, things that could come up to be proud and excited.
0: And she's hey. not. Uh, to be fair, she's not riding off into the sunset. She's going to move over to the, uh, to the Frank Corral center. Sure. But it, it's a different job. And the, I think the responsibilities will be different. And the work that she's doing will be somewhat different. But the, what she has given to our field in terms of trying to build a discipline of of public interest communications is really important. That that major doesn't exist elsewhere.
1: Well, and you know, you asked her about um, that transition because she's not an academic by right by right. training. She's yeah. a practitioner. Yeah, and and then, and
0: then that was kind of the that was the purpose <sighs> of that chair. Yeah, is they didn't want acad- academics to sit in there and talk about theory. They wanted people who had done it. But the fascinating thing about what she did is that she has, because she's in this academic institution, she's been able to take advantage of research that is rigorous, that yeah. that asks and answers questions that we don't tend to have the time or the energy or the interest or the aptitude to ask and answer. And she's taking those two, two things and putting them together.
1: Yeah. Well, and she... um the the massive library of research that she's alluding to. And then knowing which of that research to pull forward, because it's going to have relevance for the field. I mean, we've talked about this with different of our guests, how they have this ability to pull these pieces together. And this very, it's a mix, right? There's intuition there, but there's real, you know, rigor and sort of field expertise there. It seems like she's got to just, cause you know, as I was thinking about it, man, First day in a university university setting, make this up as you go. It's never been done before. What an opportunity. But wouldn't that be overwhelming? Like, would you even know where to begin? I know. <laughs> I, I would have no idea where to begin. Uh, but
0: it, again, it speaks to her, to Anne's sense of curiosity and her understanding of the possible. She's a, an extremely positive person. Yeah. Clearly, uh, and and her ability to listen as well because she's a thoughtful and heartfelt person. The idea that bu- building a discipline, you know, you you have to start somewhere, and she's yeah. starting somewhere. And it is my fervent hope that we end up with dozens of such departments or programs around yeah. the country because different people will bring different things to it. You will have different perspectives, region, whatever, and that you build from what they have started over there elsewhere so i mean it would be great if you're if you're a funder and yeah. you care about making a difference in the world you should consider f- starting you know endowing some of these chairs around the country so that we can do this work in different places and get it informed and and you know not only that one of the wonderful things about frank is that there's tons and tons of students who are yes. there they're volunteering
1: 50 she said 150 students yeah
0: and thousands over the over the 10 years of the con- or the yeah. eight years of the conference the th- that kind of energy and students getting they want to go into a field where they're making a difference in the world and I mm-hmm. think that this is a general thing a gener a generational thing as well mm-hmm. th- that we need to be able to capture them give them tools help them understand and let them teach us yeah because that's where we're going to really start seeing some difference getting made well I love how she... passive voice <laughs> differences were made <laughs> sorry <laughs> differences
1: happened I love mistakes
0: were made by this husband that's my <laughs> My classic response uh, in the
1: house. I loved how she talked about that whole how do you get started. She was like, "Well, you create a spreadsheet. You map out ten years. You map out what you're going to do by year." And and I just thought, man, that that it, even of itself is an is an interesting discipline. But let's you know push on this piece for a second. That's that what she's saying was one of her aspirations. She'd like to see, just like you can get a degree in public relations or in marketing. She'd like to see if you could see people being able to get degrees in, um, I think she said, you know, nonprofit communications or public interest communications. What do you think the likelihood of that is? And what do you think the implications of that could be if, if, if that were to be a field of, you know, just opportunity and discipline that opened up? I mean, it's funny. I don't think I've ever... Of all the bazillion resumes I've seen over the years trying to hire in this space, I've never seen one person ever, you know, who had that as a degree. You know? I don't think it doesn't it, exist.
0: It doesn't exist. Yeah. I see every so often you see a communications degree, but yeah. actually, well, most of the communications folks don't end up in our field. Yeah, they end up in in corporate. Yeah, I think. Well, here's me pitching universities across the land. <laughs> uh, it feels to me like a great way to attract students because mm. this generation. There is a key set of people who want to go out there and make a difference. Make a difference. If,
1: Great point.
0: As a university, you say, we can give you the tools to take your enthusiasm and marry it with some some learning so that you can actually make that difference even stronger. It feels like a really good marketing opportunity. Yeah. So go ahead yeah. out there, universities. Start these programs because there's a business model for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, So- there's two other pieces that I want to get into. You had a really awesome, the classic 20 minute moment in the huh? conversation, where you asked Anne to it really just takes us a while. Well, come on, there's there's a lot you're covering, right? And you asked Anne, you know, what um what would you tell the Anne of 10 or 20 years ago? Uh-huh. You know, and uh, her it's reflections. Such a, it's, a, it's such a gimmicky question, but come on, it's but it's fair. I'm guilty. It, no, come on, it's not a dress rehearsal. Is what she said, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. You know what I mean? Just to to savor and treasure the moments, um, is great. But then, you know, you're asking her about the research that she's found to be, um, informative. And then also you guys got into the themes of the conference this year. And, um, I'd love to just capture some of those research pieces that she was mentioning and who knows put them into the line notes or links off the, you know, the the podcast, because they all look really and of course, she's just, you know, dipping her toe into what I'm sure is a long list of things that have been in, in, um, Important to her. She talked about the importance of visuals, you know, as, as part of the area that she's interested in seeing, you know, and, and how that affects our. And we've talked recently about, you know, visual information and how that matters. But then you got into this conversation about the. um, the, tell, Talk about Frank and its topics this year, because you talked both about the genesis of that conference as a whole, but also the, the topics related to hope in particular at the conference. And I was on. Edge of my seat while you guys are talking to that through because I'm like, oh my god! And then all the conference sessions are online, so I'm going to go back and listen to some of these sessions because this feels like this is the the heart of our field. You know, the issues we need to be wrestling with. You guys were talking about the conference there.
0: Sure. the broad theme was emotion. Yeah. Uh, so they framed each day had a different emotion that the conversations or the, the talks focused on, and of course, uh, so there was uh, I think anger anger was in there. Okay. Um, uh, was fear in there i think fear
1: was in there huh. i have to go back and look okay
0: but it it, it for good reason for all the right reasons yeah. it moved into the positive by yes. the time we got to the end you know and hope was yeah. was uh was one that you know we we walked away from the from the conference with this framing around hope yeah and i i mean i think that that's exactly right we 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 live in challenging times. As we as we sit here today, yeah. Kirk, there's the question about whether co- coronavirus will uh, overtake California. Yeah. these cases have now been and, uh, have been uncovered, and and people are afraid. Yeah. Maybe for good reasons, or maybe for bad. We just just don't, don't know, know yet. But this this notion about being surrounded by fear—the fear of the election, the fear of pandemic—you yeah. know—isn't like, that a great? way to be. And to understand the power of hope in moving people to action, moving people to make good decisions, that's so important. And we don't end up doing that enough. Mm. And that that was a great way to finish up this conference because there is lots to be hopeful for if we pay attention to it and we take care.
1: Yeah. It's funny, you know, when we got started doing this, um, and it has been this, it was really about, Hey, there's so many people doing so much good work. Let's just, you know, track them down and, and hear from them. That's certainly the case. That's what's happening. But I feel like this thread has been emerging about how we need to shift our thinking and shift into this more, you know, we've had people call it aspirational or call it hope or, you know, um, you know, the, the, the asset framing work, you know, has its, its own, you know, language for it, but, but this, and, and Anne said, you know, we spend so much time in negative emotions, yeah. you know, and, and, to such a mixed effect. And then even talking this about the story about one of the reasons that might be the case is that the people that are drawn to this work are, you know, fairly pissed off about something. You <laughs> know what I mean? It, it is it, a motivator. That's right. It's true. That's right. It's like, you know, it's wrong, You know you know, you know, you need to make a difference. And so, um, but that just feels like such important work. So I'm so glad that, um, I'm so glad that was a topic at the conference, and hopefully, um, you know, as, as the Frank Conference moves forward, our, our the new director will come in and have some thoughts there. I do want to, you know, before we close up, this notion of the term limit, the ten years. Mm-hmm. You know, you've come out of an organization that had those term limits, and not on communications directors, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think about that notion? You know, just the just the uh, you know just the natural. prospect that there should be a beginning, middle and end that's agreed upon and understood from where go as we move through these public interest roles. What do you you think about that? Oh, it's a double edged sword. Yeah.
0: On the one hand, there's something to be said for making sure that you bring new people through. Uh, I, I like that. On the other hand, at the Hewlett Foundation so all the program staff anyone who made a grant yeah. had an eight-year term eight years and yeah. you knew the day you knew the day of your separation yeah. on the day you signed on the dotted line wow. and some some people had I don't know sort of tongue-in-cheek little Logan's run clocks <laughs> running on their computers So so, you know Logan's Run. For those of you who don't yeah. know Logan's Run, yeah, fill in that reference. whatever they are. They're uh, replicants or yeah. whatever robots of some kind, and they're going to be turned off at a specific date. Yeah. And so, and this one is when I get turned off. So it's the hijinks ensue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so the, so people know the date of their their separation, which can focus the mind. It helps you understand that you have a limited amount of time to do things. It prevents you from what might be called, you know, setting up a, a fiefdom yeah, or, sure. you know, your own little kingdom. So I think it has a lot of benefit. Mm-hmm. And the challenge of course, is if you have a really, really talented person and then they separate, I guess you, what you want them to do is to go off and do wonderful things elsewhere. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's, the, I, I think the term limit is kind of a, a neat idea.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And frankly, in today's culture, People don't stay in their jobs for 10 years anyway, so it may even be academic.
1: Yeah, that's right. No, there's an organic churn anyway. Well, Anne Cristiano, again, thank you, thank you, thank you both for joining us on this podcast, but all of this body of work. And uh, yes, still remaining closely linked to our field as the director of the Center for Public Interest Communications um, there at the University of Florida Gansville. But man, Eric, what a treat. That was a really great conversation. That was fun. Thanks everybody, until next time. Let's let's hear it. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today, or people we should have on the show, and that includes yourself. We'd like to thank
0: Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator,
1: John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music.
0: We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation and the Heinz
1: Endowments. Thank you. Thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant and you can find it at Heinz.org slash podcast.
0: We would certainly like to thank today's guest and of course, all of you. And thank you,
1: Mr. Brown. (laughs) No, no. Thank (laughs) you, Mr. Brown.
0: Till next time.
1: Let's hear it.